Welcome to Yell Parks Pod, the number one podcast for yelling about parks. Um, I am Ellery. I use they, them pronouns. I am Nick. I use they, them pronouns. And we have a very fun guest who we would like to introduce himself. Uh, This is Cuttlefish Man, or CFM, uh, he, him, coming to you from beautiful Atlantic Canada. Wonderful. So today, unfortunately, uh, we're missing Olga once again. Um, but we are going to be uh, doing an, another kind of different episode. Instead of talking about a specific park, we are going to be celebrating Citizen Science Month, which covers the entire month of April. So we are going to be doing um, just a broad overview of different citizen science topics. So Nick, I believe you have a kind of explainer for those folks who maybe don't know what citizen science is. Yeah, I typed up like a super tiny little thing about what citizen science is. Um, I know we've definitely talked about it before on the podcast, but if this is your first time joining us. um, So citizen science, essentially, it's the collection of data and research conducted by people who are not scientists. So anyone can do it, me, you, whoever. It's super important and gratifying, and citizen scientists have contributed important research to the scientific landscape. Um, Just a quick aside, the citizen in citizen science is considered a citizen of the world and not tied to any political or legal status within a country. The term community science is occasionally used, but it's not exactly correct because that specifically refers to scientists going into a community and conducting research alongside the members of the community. So it's a different thing. Just when we talk about citizens, we're talking about literally anyone who is not a scientist. Yeah, uh, that's all (laughs) super cool. Uh, And uh, (laughs) let's just get a little bit into some of the the general history of um, various citizen science projects and stuff. So um, the term itself, uh, citizen science, kind of dates back to it's been there's a the definition is quite encompassing and it encompasses a lot of differing projects and stuff historically mm-hmm. modern term uh kind of the modern citizen science uh kind of really established itself as a as a term in uh research papers and stuff starting from about the 90s or so and then uh really kind of popping off um to, to use the vernacular uh, <laughs> popping off and uh being very heavily used from the 2000s onwards um, and we'll talk about a number of specific projects uh, for that. But in actual kind of like this general conception of like, hey, let's just do a thing involving citizens doing observations or testing or otherwise interacting with science and data sets. The concept's been around for literally thousands of years. Um, in, in One great example of this uh, would be um, some of the historical uh, systems and, and testing and observations we have with like uh, astronomical observations and stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a lot of activity in the 19th century uh, when um, like all across the U.S., all across the, the world, really, um, U.S. And, the Great, uh, and Great Britain are probably the best, uh, most recorded examples of this, where people would be traveling to remote locations or going to specific high um high mountainsides uh, and stuff to get observations of celestial events, uh, eclipses, uh, comets, etc., passing through the same area. And, you know, those kinds of things, you want to get as many different observations on them as possible because they're often limited in time and scope. And also you want to, they aren't always going to reflect the same sort of information, especially because, you know, the Earth is a moving planetoid as is both it's spinning around as well as it's spinning around the sun. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that all influences how we observe stuff. Um, but uh, definitely one of the, the bigger things um, since then, uh, and which has kind of led into a lot of the more modern interests and specifically the interest we probably have, um, we'll, we'll be a bit biased towards, has been stuff <laughs> like um, uh, natural organism identification stuff, uh, which dates back to... Um, the Ottoman society and similar mm-hmm. birding societies in Great Britain and throughout Europe and stuff, where they've uh, they basically 
we're trying to get observations of these birds as parts of conservation efforts, as well as to try to differentiate themselves from uh, more traditional um, hunting, which, you know, uh, <laughs> hunting in itself isn't a bad thing, but uh, especially in the, the 19th century and the 1800s, uh, hunting was uh, done to, you know, kind of mass extinction levels with uh, yeah. you know, our friends, the passenger pigeons. Yeah, they were not very responsible about it. Yeah, the extremes. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a, little, a little extreme. So um, that's that led about to the, uh, the Christmas bird count, uh, which, um, you know, uh, is probably one of the longest running citizen science projects that's still modern, that, that modern people are still involved with. Um, mm-hmm. And also probably one of the first ones where it was truly uh, citizen uh, focused. Uh, the astronomical observation stuff, there was a degree of um, like those astronomical weather observations. Well, yes, you know, average people could write about it. There was also a degree of you had to be educated enough or you had to be in communication via letter and stuff with these uh, relatively educated elite figures. Mm-hmm. The bird count information literally is just going out and observing as many birds as possible um, on Christmas. That's, that's why it's called the Christmas bird count. And right. so, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, that, that established itself in uh, 1901. And um, yeah, it's literally a hundred something years of bird observations on a very specific point in time all across uh, North America, Great Britain, other locations and stuff. And it's just really cool to be like, yep, there are these birds and it can directly reflect um, impacts of like legislation around bird protection and other stuff that's we've seen mm-hmm. in the last 120 years. So, Yeah. I think it's, it's nice to see that it, it's got a very low barrier of entry where it's like, you just go out and you count how many birds you can see. And that is all that we ask you to do. Mm-hmm. Um, like you don't need any sort of um, equipment. You don't need to be doing a lot of math or like with science stuff you just go outside and count birds yeah totally yeah i think it's super cool too because it's like a yearly thing mm-hmm. and it started in 1901 as cfm said like so that's literally over 100 years worth of data that you can track from year to year and i just i don't know i think that's right. super super neat yeah <laughs> And I mean, it just gets to the stuff where, like, you know, just having the excuse to go out, that's a lot of why I'm involved with citizen science stuff, where it's just like, oh, this excuse to go outside, touch stuff, look Mm -hmm. at stuff, right? So that's Mm -hmm. really cool to kind of get that, and it gets into some of the uh, early conservation environmentalism uh, rambling culture that was establishing around that period in time. Um, One uh, kind of thing is obviously uh, a lot of these projects have become changed or bigger or uh, there's been a lot more communication about or just ability to help do kind of stuff and that kind of sags into the uh, kind of various types of citizen science because like the ones which um, mm-hmm. we've mentioned or not we uh, but but has been mentioned on uh, this podcast before have largely been you know uh, uh, observation based ones uh, uh, I'm personally involved with iNaturalist, um, but there's also, there's a whole lot of types of citizen science mm-hmm. um, uh, projects. And so there's obviously the kind of observation ones uh, for which uh, we've mentioned uh, the Christmas bird count uh, in terms of like uh, apps or other kind of ways of recording. Uh, there's what, uh, Merlin, uh, which is uh, Cornell University's kind of bird identification um, app system and stuff and uh, that can basically be used to get uh, recordings from either sound recordings or photos and stuff and then tag them to to tag them to identify to locations and stuff there's um, eBird which is another similar program to that um, I don't know who runs eBird off the top of my head uh, um, I think eBird is also through Cornell yeah okay <laughs> yeah I mean, the, the thing with a bunch of these over the last 20 years is a lot of them kind of arose very small and then have kind of accumulated together um, from other mm-hmm. projects and stuff, which makes like kind of the the tree of history or the relationship tree between projects sometimes a little confusing. 
and also a little bit confusing if you're trying yeah. to add information to multiple projects. I'm right. so happy I'm <laughs> not doing regular bird observations. <laughs> honestly, doing like both Merlin observations and then putting the same thing into iNaturalist is the um, there's iNaturalist, as I mentioned, uh, which is uh, cool. run by a number of uh, differing organizations um, uh, all across the world. And actually, they also run a kind of similar pro, uh, thing, which is called Spark, which is uh, not directly involved with the citizen science uh, kind of recording stuff. It's it's more meant as a kind of introductory app for people who are maybe a bit wary of posting public recordings or public observations of stuff. They might not feel comfortable doing so either from a privacy perspective or because they don't have a lot of experience, um, which we'll get to in a little we'll get to in a little bit later but you don't have to have a lot of experience mm -hmm. for citizen science observations or whatever kind of citizen science but um spark is kind of just the identification part of it without tying into the posting and sharing the recording stuff and so it's it's related to iNaturalist but it's not fully iNaturalist but um there's also lots of other types of uh citizen science projects there's um various projects in the US, Canada, elsewhere, where we have uh, water testing, um, uh, the mm -hmm. one I'm familiar with in, in Canada, although it's mostly Ontario and Western Canada, is uh, water rangers. Um, and they're just recording, doing regular recordings of water quality, and that helps to assess the healthiness of water and, and stuff, uh, as well as uh, kind of more traditional ones, which people don't think about, uh, but like um, these days, but like, just contributing computing time, uh, stuff like uh, SETI at home or folding at home historically, where, you know, um, it was citizens being like, hey, I'm not using my computer all day. I'm going to just give it spare CPU uh, cycles and stuff and let them do advanced math uh, to try to figure out proteins or other kind of information, right? So that's, that kind of helps to point to the huge scope of citizen science projects, mm -hmm. really. Um, do either of you also have uh, any citizen science uh, stuff you want to point out? So I know that, and I will probably talk about this more a little bit later, but there's the Skywarn program in the U.S. that is run through the National Weather Service. Um, and this is something that um, private citizens can do. You don't have to be like um, associated with uh, emergency response services, but uh, they do ask that you do training for it, and the training is free, um, but they ask that you do training, um, and the idea is that you are storm spotting, um, because, I, so I live in Tornado Alley, <laughs> uh, so being able to identify the conditions where a tornado may be happening is very important. <laughs> And so that is something that uh, the National Weather Service uh, offers this training for, because the more people, obviously, that are out doing it, the better reporting they have. And do, with that, do is there some component of that is, I'm just kind of wondering, because, you know, the National Weather mm -hmm. Service is uh, the technology for weather forecasting, weather observation collection stuff has been getting hugely better last over the last several decades, but what specifically mm -hmm. can a human observer do that, um, you know, our various meteorological stations and stuff can't? Do, do you know? Well, so there is, like, on-the-ground storm spotting, because um, looking at the weather radar can give you a lot of information, but it's not always, just because it looks on the radar like it might produce, the, you know, a certain... Um, features might produce a tornado it you never know until it actually forms and you can like see it but this can be a very early or it can be kind of like a an ability to flag that like hey we can see this forming um can you get eyes on it or even just like watching the radar in certain spots because meteorologists are covering very large areas typically um, and so if you're focusing on a specific spot, um, then you can kind of help flag that information for them to direct attention. Um, but it, part of it also is about 
community response and um, letting people know like how to prepare yourself, prepare your community, prepare your loved ones um, for these kinds of weather events. That's really cool. Yeah. Especially in places where it's like, you know, the weather is not just waiting until everybody is at home. So it's also very important to, you know, be able to do this information where you're maybe not in a place that, like, the TV is always going or there's, like, a storm alert radio. And so, you know, you may not know otherwise until you get, like, a push notification on your phone that, like, by the way, you're under a tornado warning. Go away. (laughs) Um, I do, it's it's always very interesting that like I will say not we're we're just going on a tornado tangent. I will say that the naming conventions around tornado warnings and tornado watches from like conversations that I've had myself and conversations about them are just always confusing to people. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, we have the if you same ever... issue with the hurricanes up here. Also, uh, just. Yeah, people are never as clear about it, and and we see stuff even with the the most recent one that really hit Atlanta, Canada, quite hard. Hurricane Fiona, um, mm-hmm. like a lot of people, just weren't paying a lot of attention to it, even though um, because of multiple years of prior hurricanes, which had people had gotten mostly scotch off on. So. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's also just important to like, even if you're not going to engage too deeply with it, like just know the weather in your area and being able to understand like what do these different classifications mean so that I know that I can prepare myself for it at like the bare minimum. Yeah, that makes sense. Um yeah. so we've talked about a few a few different uh organizations, things you can get involved with with citizen science. Um we can go a little bit more in depth with a few of them. Um, I also know CFM. You have a lot of experience. You have you're helping organize a event uh, next weekend. I think it is that I would love to hear more about. Yeah, I can talk about it. I'm not helping organize <laughs> anything. Um, it's simply because right around where I live, there's a huge. We're not urban, so there's just not that many people uh, who are observers. Mm. I'd love to talk about that uh, in a little bit, but yeah. Uh, Sure, yeah. Do we want to just go into that or? Sure, if you. Some bird stuff also. Okay, well, we'll talk about that then. Uh, So, yeah, uh, I do a lot of observations on iNaturalist, um, which is kind of a general organism, uh, general organism observation stuff. They're, They're kind of what we're looking for in observations is relatively simple. We need to have some sort of a mostly accurate, uh, geographical location for an observation um, and so that'd be a set of coordinates and uh, then uh, we're looking for uh, either a, some sort of a picture or a uh, either a picture or a uh, sound recording or or a drawing um, drawings have been used of uh, an or of the organism and then that's basically it uh, we hope that uh, observations being posted to iNaturalist um, and there's multiple differing uh, national ones. Uh, the U.S. and kind of general global one is iNaturalist.org. Uh, up here in Canada, we have iNaturalist.ca. It's present in uh, Hong Kong, uh, uh, not Hong Kong, uh, Taiwan, uh, mm-hmm. uh, throughout many different European countries and all other places and stuff. Um, but really, that's kind of the core of what we want from any observation. Obviously, we'd like it if people posted uh, some sort of identification, because, uh, you know, that's helpful. <laughs> it's a little bit more helpful to post than just being like, there's some sort of life. But, you know, <laughs> iNaturalist uh, recognizes that, like, not everyone can identify everything. And even kind of experts have difficulty uh, recognizing specific organisms. And sometimes it's just not differentiable, right? Mm-hmm. Um and that's kind of one of the the big things with uh, iNaturalist, but all other sciences and citizen science projects also. Just like 
you don't have to be perfect. Uh, right. <laughs> and also, like, especially if you're new, you are perfect. It's going to take time to learn skills. It's going to take um, resources and stuff to to read and review and to identify, oh, this is where I screwed up on identifying something. Mm -hmm. Or uh, this is what I can be looking for. And, you know, sometimes to view stuff, uh, you have to go to a specific place. For example, I live in uh, mainland Nova Scotia. Here in here on the mainland, there is basically very few muses, moose, moose, <laughs> moose. <laughs> when... There are very few moose. Um... <laughs> we had it. I oh God, I don't remember when we had this moose meese. I argument. think it might have been last episode. I don't know that that one's come out I yet. It might have yeah. been. I think it was two or three episodes. Three ago episodes. Oh one. God, yeah. <laughs> we might have this conversation a lot. Something like that. <laughs> I I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> but, but yeah. <laughs> Anyways, no matter how many mice you see, <laughs> you know, uh, so for example, I would have to probably drive up to New Brunswick or Newfoundland mm -hmm. or take the ferry over to Newfoundland or go to Cape Breton Island or something to, to go see uh, those. Um, but, you know, everyone's kind of uh, does uh, approaches and engages with iNaturalist in lots of different ways. I personally actually take a lot of enjoyment in recording uh, kind of very simple uh, kind of endemic species, uh, kind of the most specific things that I find uh, interacting with a lot is seaweeds, which, you know, macroalgae mm -hmm. are honestly boring. Um, but, you know, <laughs> that's that's part of the fun. And also because um, it's one of these things where, you know, uh, I look at like lots of other people posting in, the, in this part of Canada, they're posting a lot of observations of birds and mammals and stuff, which are fundamentally you know, more relatable, more engaging, because, uh, you know, humans bias towards cute things, I guess. <laughs> I love a critter. Um, it's been well established. Yeah, no, and I, yeah. I love lots of the little guys uh, uh, to, you know, just use a broad taxon. Um, <laughs> but, like, you know, stuff like seaweeds, even if they're not fundamentally uh, that exciting, still contribute a huge amount of information. Um uh, they they let us know. Right. Okay, hey, this kind of uh, this kind of organism is around, and or the the environmental conditions are right. Or um, seaweeds. A lot of what we would see is actually a wash up on the rack line of of the beaches, where you know, uh, rack line for anyone who's unfamiliar is that line of seaweed and uh, uh, jetsam or uh, flotsam and other kind of detritus that you see at the kind of the high tide of the beach. Mm -hmm. um, if I don't know how many of y'all's a uh, uh, huge amount of beach experience. I'm from Long Island. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't have. Uh, I am. I am from center of America. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, you got you got ponds. I don't go. We got ponds, but they don't really have much tidal movement. Uh, at most, really, so... you got like the duckweed kind of accumulating towards yeah. the edges. And well, stuff, so. we have a lot of cattails. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, but totally. But uh, yeah, like kind of getting to this whole identification thing, there is a lot of stuff in seaweeds um, as a specific example, but we also see this with mosses or with uh, even some wildflower species where a casual observer can't really actually distinguish what the heck it is. Uh, so uh, ulva, uh, which is kind of the genus for sea lettuces. Um, so if anyone's ever seen... Uh, them in the wild they're uh kind of like a just a broad uh very kind of translucent green kind of a sometimes even a bright green a uh, little uh flat uh or bright green little seaweed that will establish itself uh kind of relatively close to the to the tide line um and you know just they wash up we can kind of identify if they're kind of flat and making kind of like a sheet of a leaf or a frond, as, as it's called in seaweed, or if it's like a lot of little tubular kind of things, which is, at least historically, was part of a, how they were differentiated. These days, unfortunately, uh, through a lot of genetic and microscopic analysis, we know fundamentally there is no good way of distinguishing what species it is from basically any kind of morpho physical character uh, physical physical characteristics right which is um uh 
we describe a right pain. Uh, <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Is that the scientific term for it? <laughs> yeah, that's the technical term. Okay. And so in something like iNaturalist, the only way to know them is to identify them as ulva. It's it's that simple. We have we can only keep mm-hmm. them to a genus level. That's true for a lot of other stuff. Um, uh, mosses or lichens or uh, other things, I can be like, cool, that's an orangey lichen. That's uh, some sort of a xanthororiae or something, right? But mm-hmm. And, you know, you can depending on the nature of the organism or those species, you can kind of differentiate a bit if you know the species presence in your area. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just inherently not a perfect system. And that's kind of one of these great things, which uh, uh, iNaturalist and, and other kind of observation-based citizen science projects are kind of good for because they, by the process of like just going outside and observing life, you're able to be like, cool, Yes, I can learn in school or through some sort of formal lesson. Like, yeah, there's this one species and stuff, but life's very diverse. <laughs> it's very complicated, mm-hmm. right? And so that's yeah. uh, a lot of uh, kind of uh, fun there to interact with and play with and sometimes to be frustrated about. Um, uh, a great example of this is uh, Teraxicum, uh, which is dandelions. Yeah. Right? Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure... In North America, basically, in iNaturalist as a system, uh, all of Taraxicum is kind of grouped into a complex, or um, in in botany, it's called a section, which is basically used to distinguish organisms, which are a group of organisms, which are distinct species, at least from a genetic or other kind of point of view, but which are Mm -hmm. not distinguishable. and so uh, if you look at iNaturalist, it's called Section Traxicum Officinale, which is, mm-hmm. you know, complex common dandelions, because there's most dandelions in North America are probably, and especially the Northeast of North America, uh, are going to be basically Traxicum Officinale. Mm-hmm. But there's enough interbreeding as well as other kind of mixing together that we just can't right. distinguish uh, without that information right so that's kind of the cool thing about engaging and um yeah the other thing is just excuses for going out or for um engaging with uh, your local parks and stuff or not even parks you can just go out walking on your sidewalk and stuff and be like oh cool those are fungi i didn't notice growing yeah um especially because you know i walk around a lot i love to visit my local trails mm-hmm. I've also literally visited them all hundreds of times because I've been living there for a while. <laughs> right. Right. And so this is a great way of engaging with those and how they're changing day to day as the year passes through and be like, cool, this is a new thing. Oh, cool. This flower now is, is blooming or I can see now that there's ants have formed a little colony at this mm-hmm. patch of the road or something. So. Yeah. Yeah. I have several pictures of myself that other people have taken of me taking photos <laughs> of like weird mushrooms I've seen on the sidewalk. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's awesome. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, does anyone want to, or do any of you have uh, personal experience with some of the other stuff? I guess some of the birding stuff, maybe? I, I honestly don't have that much experience with any of it i don't know nick if you do i don't have a ton of experience i'm just now like dipping my toes into the whole birding world which but you did the um that bird watching training thing yeah i i think you talked about it a little bit last episode maybe yeah i talked about it a little bit um i went to an event put on by Feminist Bird Club. Um, and, you know, while I was there, people were talking about, like, oh, so if you get the app Merlin, then, like, you can help I- you help yourself identify, like, different bird calls, or, like, you can scroll through and see what other birds are, like, in the area, so that if you hear it, you now know to look for XYZ bird. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, um... To get a little bit more specific, there is different organizations like Feeder Watch, Project Feeder Watch North America, which you can find at feederwatch.org. Um, yeah, run by Cornell and Birds Canada. 
Um, basically what it is is that November through April, participants collect data on different backward backyard birds, um, including numbers, species, hunting, or um, displacement, uh, aka chasing away behavior. Um, so different winter ranges, health information such as like eye disease and finches, or beak and claw deformities. So despite the name, no bird feeder is required. All you need is a space that attracts birds, so like food, water, plants, trees, etc. Um, and then, you know, if this is something you want to get involved in, it's just a maximum of two days a week, minimum of 15 minutes a week. Um, just count the number of birds of each species you see at a time and any other relevant info. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, and like if there are other, I don't know. I love a critter. I love the birds. Um, but right. <laughs> I did also see doing research for this episode that um, if you just Google citizen science NASA, there's like a whole bunch of cool space stuff you can look into, like different projects. Yeah. So there's there's a couple ways. Um, well, speaking of NASA, there was I didn't put this in the doc, but um, I did post it in the Discord. I'm gonna open Ellery it now. Love space. To... I love it's cool. Space is cool. I listen to like four space podcasts. It's very cool. Yeah, there's been a lot of cool space stuff happening. There's also been some uncool space stuff happening at Elon Musk. <laughs> LOL. Go away. Okay. But earlier this week. NASA put out a, um, a little, like, article that, what is it? It's the NASA's Planet Patrol Citizen Science Project has uh, published with the Royal Astronomical Society. So the, the name of the paper, it's um, the the. TESS Triple Nine Catalog Two: A New Set of Ninety Nine Uniformly Vetted Exoplanet Candidates, which is long. And but the the idea is that they look at um, satellite survey information and have been able to um, identify objects that are not actually exoplanets, and so written up uh, information on what they found, have given it to, or submitted it to the Royal Astronomical Society, and that is now out there for people who are doing other research that they know, okay, if we see these objects in our um, observations, then we can rule out that it is an exoplanet. <clears throat> so that's really cool. Um, which is part of the NASA Citizen Science Initiatives, which if you go to science.nasa.gov, there is a tab that's, there's a, an entire tab dedicated to citizen science where it talks about projects. They have a um, get involved tab where you can connect, look at how to get involved with that. The... What is the other one? It, oh God, I always forget. I don't forget the NOAA acronym. I just do it wrong. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association? Yes. And I always want to put it... I, I always want to switch oceanic and atmospheric. I was going to say, that's funny because this bullet point we have in here says National Oceanic and Atmospheric, a atmospheric Administration. Honestly, <laughs> genuinely... It's one of these three. <laughs> I, I put it there. It's one of them. Oh, do I remember? No. Did I write this myself? Yes. <laughs> uh, did I do it wrong multiple times? Also, yes. Hell yeah. Um, if you want to know what NOAA stands for, you're going to have to Google it. <laughs> I... But so, yes, uh, NOAA also does um, citizen science projects. There are... Um, we'll put a link for you if you want to get involved. But um, they also do um, like local, more meteorological focused 
things. Um, so they work with the National Weather Service to run um, the Skyborne project that we talked about. Um, but they also uh, rely on volunteers to report rainfall, snowfall, um, things along those lines. Um, so that is another way to get involved is just being able to report like storm damage or rainfall amounts, things like that. Uh, did anyone have other things kind of in there that they wanted to talk about? Yeah. Um, one of the things I guess is just um, about, uh, you were talking about uh, some of the mm-hmm. fancy uh, astronomical research stuff. Uh, there was the mm-hmm. um, uh, the identification of planetary candidates or just kind of things in the air being not in the air. Uh, mm-hmm. Just to, I guess, kind of give a little more context to how a bunch of these um, uh, observate, like uh, organism observation sciences, are often used in in in, in uh, actual research stuff. It's it's complicated in defense because, as you can imagine, from a broad group of citizens, um, the data isn't necessarily perfect. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, data is <laughs> always you know, problemed in various ways. I, I know this doing my own research and in my own areas of study. But like uh, the the way that they're often used is to reflect um, not like discrete biodiversity because they do have uh, uh, notable biases towards, well, little guys. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to use how we, we, we brought up earlier where, you know, like people are more interested in the white-tailed deer right next to to where uh to like right off my lawn or something than they are in the little piece of lichen that's growing on the deck or something right so um mm-hmm. you can't count on it as like an intrinsic thing but especially for like general kind of uh minimum distributions or minimum ranges they are very kind of uh interesting or helpful especially for species which might be underobserved uh, or uh, kind of undercounted or identified. And so that's where a lot of kind of the uh, interest comes in, um, especially perhaps in, in urban areas or urban species stuff. Uh, for example, um, uh, one specifically great project which happens is uh, the um, Kind of traverse sectioning. Uh, this is this is an INAD. It's a its own specific project, which uh, name uh-huh. is completely forgetting me right now. But there's <laughs> people who do basically traverse uh, transects of, um, i.e., kind of walking and to a specific plot of an area and identifying every organism within it. Right. Um, it's oh cool. Uh, kind of a core bit of uh, bio biological uh, field work. Right. Um, people do this in uh-huh. the ocean. They do it in the jungles. They do it all over. Um, but, uh, they, there's a big project that does this for Central Park in New York City, right? Oh, that's neat. Um, because, you know, Central Park is cool and neat and it's full of stuff. It's incredibly urban wilderness, right? But at the same time, we want to know the nature of what's living there, right? So, um, it's, what is it called? It's like Central Park count or... Yeah, so it is just a Central Park uh, biowoods, uh, which we actually oh, okay. haven't talked about that term. Uh, we should talk about that term. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is with the Central Park Conservation uh, Conservancy, um, which is uh, kind of one of the entities uh, that looks at, um, you know, just the, the nature of wildlife and stuff. And mm-hmm. it also makes it a lot easier to engage with or makes people spend a lot more time looking at behavior and stuff of little specific sections right and so right. you know it's it's not a perfect data set but it's better than what we had prior which in many cases might have been doe data or something right right yeah so uh yeah bioblitz uh <laughs> yeah what does that I mean guess. sure uh so a bioblitz um as a term itself is kind of um broad Mm-hmm. Um, because I've used it, I've heard it used to describe events as short as like a couple of hours in a single afternoon or evening or something, and as mm-hmm. wide as uh, like most of a month or something. Uh, but a bioblitz is meant to to kind of be like a uh, time limited kind of burst of observations. 
uh, often to try to be like, okay, hey, let's see what's around in this specific geographical area or this specific time frame. Uh, and uh, as a term itself, it came about pretty recently. Um, what in uh, the the 90s, uh, but it, it's a way of kind of engaging with people who might not be uh, prior involved with citizen science projects or uh, who might not be necessarily the most comfortable be like, okay, cool. We don't want to or don't, well, we do want to, but we don't <laughs> don't have to be engaging with this stuff 24-7 and God knows I don't. I take breaks, right? Yeah. But um, uh, it, it's used to be like, cool, let's do a single event. Maybe we'll have like a, a a table or something and be like, here, you can take a break and enjoy some refreshments or something. Or, you know, oftentimes it's not quite as organized or something, but it's it's just like a kind of a nice spurt. And then you can also get in a little bit of the uh, competitive kind of um, uh, scene going, right? I know some mm -hmm. people who uh, even describe their experiences with um, kind of coming full cycle uh, but they've described their experiences using Merlin or iNaturalist as being like using, uh, like like Pokemon Go, which yeah. is uh, <laughs> <laughs> honestly quite funny when you think about like how Pokemon Go or mm -hmm. Pokemon, the franchise itself, was based off of uh, bug collecting in Japan. <laughs> the experiences of the developers in what the 70s and 80s, right? We've come so, full circle. Yes. Oh my god. Yeah. Still got to enjoy those little guys. Yeah. But yeah, so BioBlitz itself is just a focused event. And it's kind of a nice kind of finiteness, which really helps engage with people uh, mm -hmm. and makes it uh, kind of very visible. Uh, and so, like you know, stuff like the um, the, the the Christmas bird count is a bio blitz, right? Not everything has to be actually termed it, uh, but also stuff like um, uh, I, well, I talked about it now, I guess. Uh, stuff like the kind of coming. Uh, City Nature Challenge, um, which iNaturalist itself is specifically doing, iNaturalist and its many national partners like the uh, Canadian Wildlife Federation uh, and stuff, uh, is basically just a kind of focused thing uh, with the City Nature Challenge. It's uh, April 28th through to May 1st, where it's like, hey, go take as many unique observations as possible, and then we'll try to compete between differing uh, urban uh, or metro metropolitan areas. Um, so, um, uh, for example, in my province, Cape Breton and Halifax and the South Shore will all have um, their own kind of things. And then they'll be kind of competing even kind of provincially uh, for like all of the Nova Scotia identifications will compete against the other ones to be like, hey, who's done the most, you know, recording of uh, species and stuff. And it's, it's just really cool. <laughs> Um, but it also kind of provides a useful kind of thing and uh, in terms of like being like here's this way very specific way to engage which um, I know some people just in general have difficulty with with uh, citizen science projects because like they feel like they have to be over committed right. uh, or committed for super extended durations which you know some projects are like that some projects are built or based on these consistent observations day after day after day, week after week or something, mm -hmm. right? But that's that's not every project, right? And that's kind of one of the important things to, to definitely yeah, emphasize. for so. sure. Exactly. I also just love, and I can, I'm like saying this a little glib, but like I can also see myself <sighs> entirely being way too competitive. I just love the concept of I'm going to win nature. Like, love that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to see the most birds. Just watch me. <laughs> I mean, there's, yeah, I, I, I personally, uh, from all the birders I know, um, and mm -hmm. speaking as someone who's not a birder, I think many of them are weird. So <laughs> trying, to, trying to be polite, but like a, a bunch of them are very focused on um, completing their uh, kind of uh, species lists, like being like, I've mm -hmm. identified every bird or something in this area um, or like on this island or something, which is cool. But also, like, a little bit, like, okay, I at least that completionist streak doesn't uh, activate those neurons for myself. So. Yeah, I do get, um, I think it may be through eBird, but I signed up, I did sign up for um, rare bird alerts. Yeah. So every morning I wake up to an email from, <laughs> a, a, what is, oh yeah, it's, I'm pulling it up right now, um, from <laughs> eBird. 
alerts at birds.cornell.edu. Um, and it just lists um, all of the species that are considered rare birds in my area. So we have a, for today, the alert was a song sparrow, Baltimore oriole, hooded warbler, and palm warbler. Um, and Ooh. it just gives you, um, like, the location that they spotted the birds and a little bit of information on um, why they're reporting it. Because some of them, uh, it says in the comments, like, I didn't see the bird, but um, I identified the call. Um, but then you can, like, if you want to try to find it, you know the general area that it's in. And things like that, I think, can be really cool, um, especially when you have species that are outside of, like, their usual range. But also, I think gamifying it would be so terrible for me. (laughs) It seems fun, but I don't think that I would thrive in that environment. (laughs) Yeah, I admire it, honestly. I think it's cool. (laughs) No. I mean, we even see that, um, thinking non-birds, we see that with um, a number of times. So people might be identifying uh, specific types of sharks and stuff, which might mm-hmm. pop up uh, up here, which are, you know, sharks, whales, all those swim a lot, right? Right. Uh, we're kind of northerly boundary of many species and stuff. But sometimes we'll be like, oh, hey, you're significantly out of place, but really cool to see you. Um, I, unfortunately, where I live, I... I'm a little bit um, inland, but also a little bit uh, along the Bay of Fundy, so I don't get as much of the cool stuff because a lot of species can't come in as far Mm -hmm. because of just the the nature of the extreme tides out here. But, like, it's still always cool to be, like, listening or seeing my friends talking about it uh, on the other side of the province, and it's like, oh, cool, yeah, Yeah. shark. (laughs) Sharks are cool. Speaking of sharks, is it time for the fish doorbell? Please. Okay. Yes. My favorite um, bullet so, points in the whole document we have here. <laughs> I should maybe give context for people who are listening um, that I wrote a note about this um, in our like episode document last night, right before I was about to go to bed. Um, that was like, hey, I want to talk about this. And so I just I put a little note. It's like, hey, I want to talk about the fish doorbell. And then there was a sub point under it that just said fish. And I have no memory of writing that. Just fish. But it is there. It just says fish. The fish doorbell is a Dutch project. It is a live stream that is run through the Netherlands. Uh, I believe it's located in Utrecht. In the Netherlands, um, so near near the coast, and they have a lot of rivers and canals that have canal locks, which obviously present a major barrier for fish that are using these waterways to travel. Um, so fish come in from the ocean or like the river mouths trying to get inland, but they are stopped by these um, canal locks. And so what the uh, city has done is uh, they have set up a live stream, which we will include a link to. Absolutely. (laughs) Great. But um, what they're essentially relying on is people watching the live stream And if you see a fish on the camera, they have a little uh, button next to the live stream that you can press. And it alerts the person who manages the canal lock. And if there are enough fish that they feel like it's worth opening the canal lock for those fish to go through, then they can open the lock instead of waiting for when they have a boat coming through. Because that may take much longer than the fish want to hang around because they've got to go to wherever their spawn site is. Um, So it's a fun thing to do (laughs) to um, just help the fish get where they're going. 
Um, and I think it's really interesting that um, it's a really interesting way to kind of engage with the city, um, especially this place that I think many of us will not go. I mean, I want to go to Utrecht. Uh, I want to go see the fish struggle in person. I've been there. It's very cool. <laughs> there is I. This is unrelated to science, but I went on a tour of. I don't remember the name, but there's a very tall clock, like very tall tower in the city um, that you can like pay to go on a tour and they'll show you like all the inner workings of like the bell mechanism and stuff like that. But it's like 900 stairs (laughs) to get up to the top. Um, And uh, Dutch stairs are very steep. (laughs) They're, They're much steeper than... Uh, the stairs that I'm used to in America, which is great for them, but it was also not what I was expecting. It was, it was a very interesting tour, but um, my legs regretted it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think it's it's a very interesting way to um, engage if you're just looking to like watch a live stream of fish and press a doorbell. That's cool, but I think it it also shows. Um, some different ways to kind of engage in citizen science is that there are a lot of places that have these live streams. Um, I know the National Park Service operates uh, quite a few cameras in the park that you can watch. Um, And I think that that's, you know, a really great way to be able to do some of these observations especially like wildlife observations that you can see all these different critters in their environment um that you can get observation data from that without having to like be in their territory yeah i mean with the fish doorbell you can literally do it just from your desk like or from your couch it's neat it's cool yeah i'm watching the stream now i just pulled it up there's no fish currently but no there's no fish there's been a lot of um it's difficult to say exactly what it is it may be like leaf matter matter. it may be trash (laughs) um most of it i think looks like plant matter but um it mostly it's just like a kind of murky green Although it is also evening-ish. Well, I guess it's like, yeah, it's like five o'clock over there. Yeah, still a lot of light for so, that. Yeah. Um, and similarly, I know uh, here in, in my province, but also like not some national parks and stuff, there's often cameras that are observing either specific nests and stuff mm-hmm. or of like bald eagle. Bald eagle nests are probably like the most common example I can imagine in my head. But um, I know that there's a bunch uh, observing local scenic geography and stuff. And uh, heck, you can see whales off um, looking into the ocean occasionally if you bring those up at the right time or something, yeah. right? Um, and I know certainly for iNaturalist, because you can literally just take a screenshot and then if, as long as you make sure to comment and identify how you saw it, being like, I saw this through this, I know specifically where this camera is pointed to. Right. And so then you can provide the, the you know, you can provide the, the coordinates, uh, the geographic coordinates of it, and then you can just share and post it. And like, you know, especially if you have a second screen, especially if you're going to be distracting yourself anyways while you're doing your, you know, whatever stuff you're doing at your computer or something, right? Like, it's a great way of engaging with something on the side, um, especially when you know you're not going to be giving your full attention to everything all at once, right? So Yeah. Yeah, I love live stream cams. There's actually, um, at the university that I went to, there is a falcon cam. Of there is a mating pair of peregrine falcons that come back every year and lay their eggs on top of the library. Um, and it's just a really fun little cam to watch every year they come back. And it's very cute. You get to see the little babies and everything. And the parents come and they feed them. I don't know. It's cool. I like it. <laughs> yeah. That is going to cover it for us today. I know this was a little bit different, but hopefully you enjoyed listening to us talk about different, a bunch of different uh, topics, little critters, 
Is there anything that folks want to plug? Uh, I'll start, uh, as I brought up with it, uh, the iNatural City Nature Challenges are a great way of uh, getting involved with uh, iNaturalist and just citizen science more generally. Um, so if you're, perhaps you uh, have an account that you haven't uh, done many observations in the last little while, or if you want to try to get yourself or uh, friends or family involved, um, it's a lot of fun and it's very low commitment. Um, so the City Nature Challenges there, uh, which you can find out more information at citynaturechallenge.org um, is basically a kind of a series of bio blitzes uh, across what 400 something geographical locales across the world um, and locales being quite big like several tens <laughs> or twenties of kilometers of miles across or something mm -hmm. um, but basically they just want observations anything you can observe uh, from April 28th to May 1st, uh, which should be this next weekend after this podcast, or this coming weekend after the podcast comes out, hopefully. <laughs> um, and then also, uh, they'll also need just people to identify stuff. Because, uh, you know, yeah, even if someone is like, yep, that's a blue jay, or yep, that's a, a, a beech tree or something, right? They still need some a second person to confirm that it is it, right? Um, even if, you know, just to help make sure that everything is scrutinized and has eyes on it at least once. And so uh, they'll be doing an identification period starting April 28th, but really May 2nd through 7th. Um, and so if you want to just go in and look and be like, yep, that's a bird. Yep, that's seaweed or something, right? That's a great time for doing it. Um, and though we'll, we'll also share a link for it, uh, but uh, inaturalist.ca uh, uh, just done well two webinars. Um, I posted. A, a, we'll share the link for the English one. Um, but it's it's a way of describing or talking about the process in kind of a lot more specific detail. If you're want to hear more information or just want to see how uh, iNaturalist and the Canadian Wildlife Federation or other entities describe and talk about the project, um, that's a, that's a great webinar talking about this. And then there's also uh, I believe a link to the French version of that there also. Yeah. Yeah, I want to give a shout out to the Bird Union as well, formerly named Autobahn for All. Uh, they recently changed their names to Sever Ties to their previous namesake, Autobahn, uh, who was a terrible person, uh, very bad, and rightfully yeah. they should be changing the name. Um, yeah. There's a statement on their website if you want to hear more about that. Um but basically, the bird union is representing workers at major North American birding and environmental advocacy groups. Um, the, they are advocating for job security after huge layoffs, equitable and inclusive work environments, and fair pay. Um, full support to them. The CEO and board of directors at the Audubon Society have been using union busting tactics. Um, bird union, let's go. We like them. Yeah. Shout out to them. Uh, and then we also have citizenscience.org project catalog. So this has uh, listings for many different ongoing projects in the United States. Um, so if you want to get involved, you can check that out. Um, I will also I try to include a link to the NASA Citizen Science uh, information as, and uh, the NOAA information. We have not fully settled uh, on our next episode, so it will be, I think, as much a surprise for you as it will be for us, but um, keep your eyes out for that. We also want to encourage, since we're not covering a specific park this episode, citizen science is something that you can start doing right now in your local area. So, and you can start by uh, taking some time to learn about the original caretakers of the land that you are on. So if you would like to do that, you can visit native-land.ca um, and that will give you more information for your local area. I also have one more shout out that I just want to say really quick. Um, one 
Happy Earth Day, because we're recording this on Earth Day. Go figure. Happy Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. <laughs> also. Happy birthday, Earth. Happy birthday, Earth. Also want to give a shout out. Happy birthday, Hawk, who does a lot of the research assistance for our, for our podcast. Um, yeah. You might remember her from a previous episode. Shout out to Hawk. We appreciate you. Also, yeah. happy Citizen Science Month. That's all. <laughs> uh, happy birthday yeah. to the Earth and also to Hawk. Yes. <laughs> And uh, happy uh, Eid for people also. Yes, and happy Eid. Happy Eid. For anyone who's celebrating. So if you want to get in touch, you can email us at yellparkspod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter or Tumblr at yellparkspod. Uh, And with that, let's do our (laughs) final Yahoo. (laughs) Yahoo! (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.